everyone, welcome back to the Spirit of Prophecy. I really uh, am excited about today's show. Of course, the last two days, we interviewed Pastor T.S. Luchan, who is one of the authors of Crept In Unawares. And today, we have one of the other authors, Evangelist Brian Sharp. And before I uh, have him on here and uh, introduce him, I'm uh, just one thing I wanted to put out there. And uh, I, I talked to him the other day about coming on the show. I had a good conversation. He was very gracious about coming on. Um, I have in the past, and I'm just going to go on record, you know, I've been critical of Brother Sharp about some things. And obviously we don't, uh, you know, agree on everything. But at the same time, I, I do think it's wrong. And I'm working on making sure if I ever have a problem with somebody, I talk to them first. I, I never talked with Brother Sharp about anything uh, of issues that I had, things he was teaching, and stuff like that, and that you know that wasn't completely fair uh, to do it that way, and um, and so you know a lot of times you hear things, and I've just learned um, never trust Baptists and what they say about other people. It's just not uh, it's not a good good practice. And so um, a while back, I mentioned this with Pastor Lucian. I heard some people that were kind of taking some shots at people teaching certain doctrines. And I heard that and I thought, well, that sounds a lot like what I believe on some things. And I was kind of wondering who they were talking about. I uh, ended up tracing it to Brother Sharp. And so I, I looked on his website and I saw this book on there. I thought, I'm going to go read that book. And when I started reading it, though, I was thinking I was not going to like it. I was going to find all kinds of problems with it. And I just started reading through it and I'm like, wow, this is this is some good stuff. And, uh, I, I agree with, you know, what, what he, what they're saying in here and, uh, really appreciated it. And so since I started this podcast, I wanted to do some book reviews and I was planning on reviewing this book, but I thought it'd be great if I could get the authors on. And so I did a contacted and I, um, I haven't heard uh, back anything from brother Edwards yet. I, I have talked to him in the past, about it, and I really do appreciate uh, Brother Edwards as well. He's always been very kind to me when I've talked to him, and uh, Brother Sharp is very kind to me when I talk to him. And so I'm just putting out, you know, public apology uh, for not uh, handling things appropriately when it came to disagreements. And today it's not about uh, disagreements. I mainly want to talk about some things that we do agree on, things I appreciate in his book. And so, uh, Brother Sharp, Thank you so much for coming on this program. If you would like to just introduce yourself to everyone and uh, tell everyone a little bit about your ministry. Well, thank you, Pastor McMurtry. It is uh, my joy and honor to be here, and thank you for your kind and your gracious words. I am an evangelist. Uh, I wanted to be a professional baseball player as I was growing up. had the opportunity to do so. But at the age of 20, I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior, walked off the ball field, and God immediately called me to preach, and I have been preaching for 48 years. Amen. Well, that's exciting. And so you, um, you know, as you're an evangelist, so you obviously you travel all over preaching, but a lot of your ministry uh, is focused in Israel. And if you want to uh, tell everyone a uh, little bit about uh, your ministry there. I know you take several trips uh, over there. I've always been interested in hearing about some of those, and uh, you want to say a little bit about that? 
Sure. I founded the Gentile Ministry in 2005 as a result of me personally. This is not my calling other than it's every believer's calling to put the Jew first with the gospel, to minister unto them in carnal things, as Paul said, and also to provoke them to a jealousy, to realize that we are grafted in not only to branches that were broken off that were Israel, but to an Israeli tree of which Jesus is the root. So I saw all kinds of responsibilities that I have to be a blessing to the seed of Abraham. I certainly did not want to be a curse. I wanted to be on the blessing side. I began obeying the scriptures as a believer and approaching Jewish people as it is set forth in the scripture. Paul said to the Jew, I became as a Jew. I became all things to all men that I might win some. As a result of paying attention to the words in the scripture, God opened many, many doors for me in Israel. And every week I meet with prominent Jewish people, either by phone, on the internet, or in person. Okay. Uh, very, yeah, it's very interesting. And, and just a reminder, too, for people who watch me, again, sometimes I think it's important um, if we're going to have discussions, if we're going to get anywhere, it's okay to sometimes to just listen. And that's what I've been kind of doing um, in uh, these last interviews, in these last few days. I'm talking to some men who have a lot of good material. Uh, I mentioned uh, in this book, uh, it does a fantastic job refuting things like dispensational salvation. That's something I've preached against a lot, but I got a lot more ammo from this book. There are certain things that um, I teach about the church that, um, you know, this book not only explains it very well, but it gave me a lot more ammo. And so when, I, when I'm listening to some guys who uh, are getting a lot of these things right and who've been around a long time, I'm okay with just listening sometimes. And that's what I'm doing here today. And so... Again, I'm not here to argue with Brother Sharp about anything, and so if you hear him say something you know I don't necessarily uh, go along with, don't get uh, don't get too upset with me, and unless be respectful uh, too. You know, if y'all get ugly in the comments and things like that, I'm just probably going to delete you. Uh, we need to have these conversations sometime. But um, you know, Brother Sharp, I have you know, followed your ministry for a long time. You, you preached at my dad's church a couple times. Uh, long time ago. I don't remember how long ago that was, but I do want to show you a video. I think you'll be able to see this. Um, and I, I use a line in this video. There's a line I use in this video and I want to see if it is familiar to you. And so, uh, check this out. Hopefully you'll be able to hear it. If not, I'll tell you what I said. My name is Tommy McMurtry and I am at the Dead Sea, the lowest place on earth. And because I have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, this is the closest to hell that I will ever get. Do you recognize that line? I do recognize it. And in all honesty, I borrowed it from somebody else. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. I, I was listening to a sermon you preached one time, and I heard you say that. And I was like, man, that is so good. I was like, if I ever get a chance to go back to Israel and to the Dead Sea, I'm stealing that line, and so yeah. uh, we were there. We were there back in December, and I, 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 brother Paul, the man I was with, I told him, I was like, "Man, we, I've got to get a video of me at the Dead Sea." I'm, I'm stealing that. I'm stealing that line. So uh, I've had that video uh, up for several months now, but I'm confessing also right now. 
I stole the line from Brother Sharp. <laughs> so uh, nothing I, new I, under the sun. That's right. I was yeah. So I was really excited about uh, about getting a chance to uh, to use that line. But um, I want to show something else here too. Um, do you do you want to tell everyone about the jawbone that you have? I I heard you talk about this one time, and um, I remember when you were talking about it. Um, I didn't know the place that you were talking about for sure, but when I went over to Israel this year, uh, we went to the place that is known as the Altar of Melchizedek. Um, imagine you probably recognize that place right there. Um, but is that the area where you fa- uh, where they found that? Yes, I'll show it to you. Okay. This is a, can you see that? Am I going the wrong way? Here, let me get it on full screen of you. That'll help. There you go. So lift it up, raise it up. There you go. Can you see it there? Yep, there it is. Yep. All right. This sacrificial lamb's jawbone was found during an archaeological dig uh, about 10 years ago in Jerusalem. It is reportedly the oldest sacrificial lamb's jawbone that has been found in Jerusalem. It was the deepest. I ask, uh, there are rabbis who are in charge of everything. I ask about uh, the the structure of the earth as they went down. Are you Are you deeper than Romans? Yes. Are you deeper than Byzantine? Yes. Marmaluke? Yes. Ottoman Empire? Yes. Are you deeper than Herod? Yes. Are you deeper than when the Jebusites uh, inhabited this place? Yes. Are you deeper? And I kept going back in history. Are you deeper than Melchizedek? And they had a puzzled look on their face. And they said, no, nothing is deeper than Melchizedek. So this sacrificial lamb's jawbone was found deep on virgin soil, and it was pitched in the dirt as if it meant nothing. They were more interested in the stone structure around Melchizedek's house of God that he had back then. And uh, I ended up with it. And so I, I theorize sometimes, or mm. I just think about, I wonder if this was the ram that was caught in the thicket, you know? Mm. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder, I don't know. You know, it may be something from two years ago where somebody killed a sheep and just dug, dug mm-hmm. a hole and buried it. But at least I have the jawbone. Yeah, it's just neat to think about, too, because, I mean, that that area was probably uh, where uh, Abraham went to go take Isaac for the sacrifice, and so... It's just interesting thinking, you know, going to those places, thinking about all the things that took place in that area. It's all—it's always fascinating. Always enjoy it. But we'll go ahead and kind of get into uh, an interview now about this book. And I want to start off. Um, a lot of these questions I'm going to be asking are me the same ones that I uh, asked Pastor Lujan. But we're going to get Brother Sharp's, uh, posi- you know, his opinion and uh, his thoughts on these things. But what motivated you to write this book? Well, I noticed that uh, tradition was replacing scripture. Um, Old-time religion-type meetings was not uh, going back far enough other than two or three 
generations and mentioning of people. It, it became a people and not a scripture uh, type meeting. Application, I, I think you can get this, and I hope all the preachers listening can get this. Application was replacing interpretation. In other words, an agenda was decided, and I'm going to preach on this particular subject. And then they went to the verses of Scripture and tried to make a verse or a passage fit the subject. The application preceded the interpretation rather than the other way around. I think it very, very dangerous to assign young men who are preparing for the ministry a topic versus a text we are to preach the word there's a topic in every text but if you preach the topic then what they've heard in the past they think this passage of scripture may refer to that when they may be missing the mark and they're not called to preach topic they're called to preach the word topic is in there and as you get older you remember where the topics were because you preached the word and then all of a sudden you saw the topic come out of the word, but you didn't get ahead of the word and make the word fit the topic. You stayed behind the word and the topic naturally came forth. So application is almost always made by the Holy Spirit while one is preaching the word. You can, you can hit it at the end of a message or make something, but I never start off with application. And this is what I saw. I saw the origination of messages were, were not being birthed by the inspired words of God. They were being birthed by the intents of men. And God's word separates thought from intent, Hebrews 4.12. There used to be an old saying, and I will ask this in a church, rarely does anyone under the age of 50 can they finish the phrase? And the phrase is, the road to hell is paved with, and then I pause. The old people remember lots of preachers saying and finishing. The young people have no idea. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. That's not a verse of scripture, but it is a phrase. And it's a phrase that talks about application versus interpretation. Intentions are not what God wanted us to preach. He wants us to preach his word. It was Wycliffe who said that a preacher's vocabulary must align. It must change. It must align with the words that are in the scripture. Sermon ideas were being thought up. Um, it was a revamp of somebody else's sermon that they heard. Um, I could tell just a, a minute or two in, okay, this whole sermon is going to be built around an illustration that's going to be told at the end of the sermon. In other words, the illustration originated it and not the inspired words of God. I Yeah, I'm so glad to hear you say that because one of the things that I've been talking about and I've learned, you know, in studying doctrine and just trying to, you know, get an overall grasp of the Word of God is that we have preached life application so much from certain passages without ever teaching the original, you know, intent of that passage that we've almost forgotten it. I think that's the case with a lot of parables that, you know, we never preach why Jesus was giving the parable at that time. And we just make a modern day life application for it. And, 
And I don't think it's wrong to do that. But if we never preach, you know, what the text is all about, then uh, we're going to we're going to lose stuff and people are going to start to misapply those things because, you know, an application, you know, while we can make an application and make comparisons, you know, it's still not the same thing. And then some of these passages have just morphed into all kinds of you know, goofiness. So they, I hear what you're saying. I agree. They they have laid a different foundation. If you go to the, here's a prime example. If you go to the feeding of the 5,000 and then Jesus walking on the water, I have heard over the years at least a dozen sermons about Peter getting out of the ship and walking on the water. Some of them have been titled, It's Time to Get Out of the Boat. Do something for God. Now, when you look at that passage of Scripture, the disciples' attitude was to send the multitude away. It was Jesus who said, make them sit down. But Lord, we don't have enough food. There's a lad here with this little bit. And Jesus fed them all. And then it says he had to constrain the disciples to get into a ship. Almost had to lay hands on them. They move toward the crowd when the crowd has a need. Move away from the crowd when the crowd seeks to exalt you. So they didn't want to leave the crowd after the miracle because of the pats on the back, so on and so forth. Jesus constrained them. He put them in a ship, and he said, sail to the other side. And then he finally got to go up on the mountain to grieve over the death of John the Baptist, but not before he met everybody's needs. Now, we all know the story halfway out. It's a seven-mile journey across that part of the Sea of Galilee. Halfway out, the storm came up over the uh, 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 hills, and the disciples were afraid. And Jesus went unto them walking on the water. Now, just because they couldn't see him didn't mean he couldn't see them. Jesus has left us on this earth. He's departed. He's in a high place. But just because we can't see him doesn't mean that he doesn't understand us. He's the one put him in that boat. And he knew the storm was coming. And he told him, don't get out of the boat until you get to the other side. So then Peter says, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And Jesus said, come. Now, I can prove, and the scripture proves, that it was not God's will for Peter to get out of the ship. Jesus didn't change his will. He told him to stay in the ship till they got to the other side. But a person who preaches application will say, time to get out of the boat do something. Those other disciples were afraid, and Peter, he got out of that boat with courage. And then some critics will say, well, Brother Sharp, why did Jesus say come? Well, you got to look at the question. Peter said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. I've seen that phrase before. If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee. If thou be the son, command, son of God, command these stones be made bread. If thou wilt fall down and worship me. That's called tempting the Lord. One cannot demand that Jesus or God or the Godhead prove their deity on that person's terms. Jesus already said, get in the ship and stay in it till you got to the other side. Peter wanted to change God's will, wanted God to change his will. So, Peter is answered by Jesus, come. Now, that's not a command. That's not come and dine. That's not come now, let us reason. 
that's not a command given. That's permission granted. Two entirely different things. You think you can walk on water, Peter? Oh, you've so soon forgotten what I just told you? You almost missed the miracle of the feeding because you wanted me to send him away. Now you're about to miss something else because you want to get out of the ship. You think you can walk on the water? Come on. Hmm. Try it. Well, it ended disastrously. No one was blessed until Peter got back in the boat. So that's where application when somebody says, it's time to get out of the boat. No, it's time to stay in the ship. Stay in your church. Stay in the will of God. Here's application after interpretation. Stay in your the assembly. Stay in the church. Stay in the will of God. Stay in your marriage. Stay faithful to what he said. That's good. It's kind of like uh, Gideon. You know, people say we ought to, you know, they'll talk about laying out fleeces. But Gideon did that, you know, asking God to prove himself that if he was going to do what he said he was going to do. And uh, I personally, in my opinion, I think that's why God made him whittle his army down to 300. He's going to get some faith out of that guy at some point. And, and, and you notice too, after he got his army down to 300, he quit asking for signs. <laughs> and so, uh, I, yeah, I, I, that, that's good. That's interesting. So um, what has been the um, response that you've received from this book? Well, to those who read it, it's been very positive. To those who haven't read it, I get secondhand information all the time that they're highly critical. Uh, all the time. And so all I ask is read it. And if you have a question, I'll answer my phone. If I am not busy or on the phone with somebody else, and I'll be more than happy to answer the question. Yeah. And, and so tell us a little bit about the two men who co-authored this with you. Of course, we had Pastor Lushan on here yesterday, but um, you want to say something about them? Uh, Pastor Lushan, I have known for about a quarter of a century. Uh, Pastor Edwards for maybe 30 years. I have preached for both of these men multiple times. I have seen just scores and scores of people born again, saved uh, while preaching for them. And both of these two men, in my opinion, labor at being accurate with the words that are in the scripture. That's good. Yeah, I agree. And I've had, like I said, I've had some real good talks with them and always learn a lot. I've read uh, Pastor Edwards' book, A Continuation of the Church in the Wilderness. Uh, that I really, really enjoyed that book. And He wrote uh, that after I did a series on that at his church. Okay. That's a very good book. Yeah, yeah, I, I really did enjoy that. And so uh, this is something I'm just kind of interested in. I, I like asking evangelists about this especially because, you know, as pastors, uh, you know, we don't always get out that much. Um, you know, we have our select places that we typically go to, you know, in a year's time and, you know, conference here or there. But, you know, as an evangelist who's in different churches all over the country, you know, what— I guess, what are your thoughts on just the spiritual or theological condition of Baptist churches? You know, are you seeing any dangerous trends that you think we sh- that people should be watching out for? Uh, I, th- I think I understand your question. Correct me if, if I am wrong. I'm going to stay away from the word theological, the, the non-scripture. I, I do, I think I understand that you're, attempting to tie this to scripture it's a protestant word uh, uh, if we would say what is the scriptural condition of the churches 
that may be a more accurate question and if that is okay with you yes yeah okay. no you guys are you guys are challenging me in <laughs> in my vocabulary and so go well, you know go ahead and and call me out on that stuff cuz um you know that that that's one of the things about this book that I think is driving people crazy is there is there we have let a lot of tradition uh, a lot of bad terminology it has it's made its way and it has affected things when you actually think about what changing these words has done and the confusion that's come from it it is very revealing and so um you know I, I that's the thing i've i appreciate about pastor lushan that i mentioned is i do feel like you know he's been thinking about this for a long time and he's very disciplined in his words and what's but what what I like about that is I learn from him because a lot of teachers that are out there when they get done with the sermon you don't even know what they believe, and so I I think it is effective to be more precise and you know and, and people act like ah oh, you're splitting hairs and nitpicking, but it's like wait I do feel like our churches are confused as all get out when it comes to a lot of things in the scripture so. You know, I'm going to I'm going to listen to what they have to say and and think about some of these things that, you know, you know, there are there's there's some Pastor Pastor Lujan mentioned fundamentalism. I like that word, (laughs) you know, so. um, So, yeah, so go ahead and, you know, call me out on this. The scripture would probably sum most of these words up as subtle and or feigned Mm -hmm. words. They're very close. They're very similar but they are not inspired. Men are not inspired. Men, not in the scriptural sense. Men were never inspired. The words are inspired. They were given inspired words to write down. But um, what I see, yes, I do see an absolute danger. We know a falling away happens before Christ returns. In the last hundred years, if we just speak, and I'll use a secular word here, denominations. In the last hundred years, if I were to ask you or your listeners, which denomination, and I use that word loosely just so that we can understand, which denomination do you think has tried to stick as close to the scriptures as possible? I would suspect that most of your listeners would say independent Baptist have. If there is a falling away, and there is, and if it must come, and it will, and if we are getting closer to what the scripture would call end times, the return of Christ, the trumpet sound, the moment, the twinkling in of an eye, who falls away? Do Catholics fall away? They never had a correct position to fall from, to begin with. Methodists, Presbyterians, Nazarenes. And we can go down the list. Now, I'm not saying that all Catholics are bad and all Catholics are not saved or all Presbyterians are bad. I'm not saying that at all. Our critic will say that. But if there is a falling away from sound doctrine, and again, when there's an S put on the word doctrine, I've taught in every major so-called Bible college in the United States of America over the last 48 years, every single one of them. Every one of them had a class titled Bible doctrines. Brother Sharp, can you give us a week and come in while you're preaching at the church and teach on Bible doctrines? I said, no. 
And they say, oh, well, you're going to be here. Are you busy? No, I've got plenty of time. Well, how come? I, I can't do that. There's no such thing. When there's an S added to doctrine, it is doctrines of men and doctrines of devils. So doctrine is singular. It never changes. I make this challenge. Show me any part of doctrine. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's salvation, eternal life, everlasting life, uh, imputed, justified. It doesn't matter. Redeemed. Show me any part of doctrine, and I will show you where it started with Moses and the prophets, because it does not change. Doctrines do. Doctrine doesn't. Doctrines are bad. Doctrine is good. So I've seen this, and many churches today, Brother McMurtry, uh, I will try to make this brief. In First Thessalonians chapter 5, the scripture talks about those of us who've been born again. We have body, soul, and spirit, or spirit, soul, and body. It's three parts. The scripture says in Hebrews 4.12 that God's word is sharp enough to separate the soul from the spirit, or spirit from the soul. Now, I asked this question to 100 different independent Baptist preachers, what's the difference between spirit and soul? About 90% of them could not answer. There's a big difference. Proverbs 18.1, Through desire, man having separated himself, seeketh and intermeddleth with all wisdom. Now, there's a hundred or so verses that talk about separation as in dress and so on from immorality and the rest. And, and I believe in that. But Proverbs 18 is not talking about that. A man having separated himself. Once you get born again, you have a body, soul, and a spirit. But one of those you did not have before you got born again, and that was a spirit. Your spirit was the only thing that got born again. It was dead in trespasses and sin. Your body did not get born again. Now it gets the promise of being glorified one day. It got that at salvation. Your soul did not get born again. It gets the promise of being redeemed one day. The only part of us that got born again was our spirit. Our spirit cannot sin. This is First John. Whosoever is born of God cannot sin. His seed remaineth in him. Now, it doesn't mean that I or any believer is, is sinless. It doesn't mean that at all. Or that you've got to get saved again and again and again. Or you lost it and so on. Not at all. Two-thirds of us, 0.666, that number, 666, our body and our soul are not born again. One-third of us is. Our spirit cannot sin. It never makes a mistake because it's led by the Holy Spirit who only uses the words of God. Your soul can still sin. It's your emotion, your feelings. How often has someone come to you and said, Pastor, this is just the way I feel about it. That's their soul talking to you. It's not their spirit. It's their soul. Our body, it still sins. So when Adam when God told Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for he said, in the day ye eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. Question, when Adam ate, did he die? Physically, no. Did his body die? No. Did his soul die? No. What part of him died? It would be the spirit. His spirit, because God had already breathed into him. So what needed to be born again? His spirit. Mm -hmm. 
the spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, spirit is spirit. So here's what I see in churches. It's soul. And soul has been repeated so many times. It's like an old, I don't know if you listened to rock and roll before you got saved. I, I know you're a preacher's mm -hmm. son. I didn't get saved till I was 20. But when you hear something, it's not scriptural, but it makes you feel youthful. That's soul. And all of a sudden, when that's repeated, you think this is the old time religion. Mm. So why does one go to church? Well, my friends are there. That's soul. Why do you go to church? I love to hear the choir sing. That's soul. Why do you go to church? I love it when the children are up there singing. And that's also nothing wrong with that. But that's not why you go. You go to hear the word of God taught and preached so that your spirit is strengthened. You can tell the difference between soul and spirit that fast. As soon as you get on words and get off of tradition, as soon as you get in spirit and away from soul, most people, many people, there are many people, they're going to keep going. It wouldn't matter if you died and they brought in somebody dressed in a robe. There are people that still come to your church because that's always where they've always went. Okay, soul. It's, it's replaced spirit here. If you want to call it replacement theology, yes. I see it. It's there. The soul can get angry, especially when it's corrected. It must submit to the spirit. When the soul and the flesh get together, they're tugging. But when, and the spirit, he's not loud and boisterous. He's just like the Holy Spirit. It's a still small voice. You know, it's a whisper. You know, you're not doing right. Here's what the scripture says. Here's why most people leave independent Baptist churches and go to what has been now coined as emerging church or whatever. Their spirit something that disagrees but they can't figure it out in the church because they're not in the words of god at first they went to the church because of the strong personality the old-time religion it stroked the strings of their soul but then something went wrong and they couldn't pinpoint it they couldn't define it so they went to another strong personality soulish church and then to another. And then after a while, they just give up. They just give up. And they become critical. So I so, hope that answered your question. No, that no, that's very true. It is. We're we're, we're very personality driven. You know, we're this generation especially, and the ones younger than me, it's all about the influencers. And it's all and so people go places for a personality and for a show. And that is I, I like the way you explain that, how that feeds the soul. And not the spirit. And I personally think, you know, the, the, uh, that teaching about the difference, especially too about how it's the only the spirit that saved. I think that's one of the reasons we see so many young people getting saved over and over again. Every time they get in some kind of sin, you know, they think I must not be saved. And, you know, and if they were taught right, if they were taught some good doctrine, then they would understand, hey, I just need to crucify this flesh like the Bible says, I need to walk in the spirit so I won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. But these things are just not taught. It's all emotion. It's all hype. 
And and I want to say this too because when I first heard, I I I believe I was listening to a message you heard, and I I heard you talk about the uh, doctrine versus doctrines, and it at first I'm just like, ah, oh, that's that's really nitpicking, you know, you know, I that's not what people mean. But then I got to thinking about it, you know, as I thought about it, look at how much bad teaching is out there based on dispensations. So in other words. When they people come to a, maybe a difficult portion of scripture, they just act like that was another dispensation, and they're literally teaching a different way of salvation before the cross. Um, and you know, and but when you realize it's doctrine that the Bible's teaching one thing, it's just maybe giving us more information as time goes on. It really helps clear everything up. And uh, I ju- I just started reading your book. I got it in yesterday the chronology of the house of God. I, I read the first chapter this morning and, uh, and, and I'm already hooked, but, um, everybody's, you know, be, based on right division, they're always chopping everything up in the Bible and, and separating everything. And it, it, I think it's, I do, I think it's done a lot of damage and some of these, what seem like insignificant things, I don't think they're so insignificant. And I think, you know, hence the title of your book, you know, crept in unawares it's not it doesn't come in in a real obvious way it's it's subtly the way the devil has always worked and so i've had um i've had people say um there was no soul winning in the old testament i've heard preachers say that mm-hmm. and yet when they preach on soul winning they go to proverbs either yeah. when a souls is wise um that's the Old Testament, this is the New, until it's time for tithing. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to Malachi. Doctrine does not change. Well, it and, change. And, and you've, you, I've heard you guys point out a lot of these things too, but I'll point these things out to people. You know, for one, like, you know, who told Abel to sacrifice a lamb? You know, how did Moses know what clean and unclean animals were before the law? You know, how, how come Cain was worried after he killed Abel that everybody who found him was going to want to kill him, you know, before the death penalty was instituted in the dispensation of human government, you know, and there, there's so much just in Genesis that, you know, that debunks all that foolishness. And and I believe that Job is older than Genesis. And I think mm-hmm. I can prove that there's well, some and, modern. And, and you mentioned that in the book too. I read that this morning about just, uh, you know, Job, Job believed in a resur- a physical resurrection. Absolutely. He, he knew, knew his, his redeemer, redeemer lived. And that he would stand in the latter day pundit. Where did he get all? Where, where, when, when? When did he get that dispensation? How did he get all those dispensations before those dispensations? You know. And so, there's so much in the Bible that debunks all of that. And you know, in this book, it does. It hits dispensationalism hard. It it does debunk many of the major heresies. And so, what do you say to people? Whenever you start nailing that stuff, the dispensational salvation, all that, but they're always like, "Well, I'm not that kind of dispensationalist." There's only so much you can get in one sermon or one podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Only so much. So a lot of times, as with Jesus, he would say some things that would pique their interest or spur them to ask questions in the future. Now, somebody who has a teachable spirit and wants, wants to learn will take advantage of that, make an appointment, ask about it as they did with Jesus. Those who want to be critical 
will not and will take a portion of what you said and uh, take it out of context or whatever. Uh, you, just, you just can't get everything. I mean, the world can't contain the things that should be written about mm. Jesus, and we can't get everything in one sermon. Yeah, yeah. And so in, in this book, too, you know, the the wolves that are on there, you've got like Darby, Westcott, Hort, Schofield, and you kind of have Balak front and center. And, uh, you know, the, there's a good, uh, you know, example using there about Balak and how he was. But, um, you know, I've noticed that Baptists, too, um, whenever they've commented on, um, you know, what you, you guys will say about Schofield. Another friend of mine wrote a book where he hit Schofield really hard. And then people are like, oh, you know, it just seems like a hit job on Schofield or whatever. But it's kind of hypocritical for Baptists to all of a sudden get offended by that because I've seen Baptists cream other ba- Baptist preachers for um, using the wrong music, you know, for, you know, just, you know, having a s- certain preacher in or something like that. And then you've got Schofield, who uh, you guys put, um, you know, you tell us a lot about his life uh, and the part that you write about Schofield. You know, Pastor Edwards, he goes through the uh, a lot of his notes, the notes that are in the Schofield Bible that if a Baptist preacher got up in any conference and said the things that Schofield said, they would get so creamed. It's not even funny, but, um, you know, people try to act like they're not influenced by Schofield. But do you believe that guys like Schofield have had an impact on the Baptist world? Yes, I most definitely do. Um, I'm fortunate enough when I got saved in 1975 and started preaching, there was an old Baptist preacher by the name of Fred Varner who was nearly 100 years old at the time. He graduated Moody. Uh, he gave me all of his sermons when uh, before he passed away. And his illustrations, he would say, I met Mr. Moody in the hall today. We talked about this, that, and the other. About Schofield. Schofield had left his wife and two teenage daughters in Kansas. He, he was a crook. He was not a good guy. He came to St. Louis, impersonated an attorney, uh, that he was an attorney, was put in jail for embezzlement, several fraud cases against him. And he lied about his so-called conversion date, never told anyone he was married. Now, I, you know, I, if guy's been divorced, that's up to him. I'm not throwing anybody under the bridge here for that. But he didn't tell anyone he was married, and he wasn't divorced. Now, the Baptists found out about it and wouldn't let him darken the doors of a Baptist church in the St. Louis area. Would not. He was forbidden. He had a so-called conversion and then lied about it, said it was at a Moody conference, and the Moody conference didn't happen until three months after his so-called conversion here in St. Louis. He met up with a fellow by the name of Philip Brooks, who was a Presbyterian, who was influenced by John Nelson Darby, an Anglican uh, preacher, who invented, uh, propagated, then called Darbyism, today dispensationalism. Mm. And the Baptists rejected it. They rejected it in Europe, came over to Europe. The Presbyterians picked it up. This Presbyterian preacher had a Bible college, and Schofield and he and him became friends, bailed him out of jail a time or two. And then Schofield started writing this correspondence curriculum that became the Schofield Note Bible. 
Schofield moved to Dallas as a Congregationalist preacher, got married, then divorced his wife in Kansas, then altered the dates on both documents, and started another correspondence school upon his death that was inherited by Dallas Theological Seminary, so it got into the Southern Baptists. They were using his Bible with the notes. The Southern Baptists kicked Norris out, and then the BBF was formed, turned against Norris, uh, Norris because of his pro-Israel stand. And by the way, Schofield was not pro-Israel. He was more like, uh, he, he, that, his teaching brought about Neville Chamberlain. I don't know if you're familiar with that name, the minister of religion for Adolf Hitler, uh, apathy. This is where Balak comes in that you mentioned. If you can't curse the Jews, just don't bless them, is what he said to Balaam. So it was apathy, a middle of the road, out of sight, out of mind. The BBF started, left Norris, went to Springfield, and used exclusively the Schofield Reference Bible to train their men. And that's how it's become so popular today. Yeah, interesting. So, well... We're going to have to close out this episode here pretty quick. But one thing I do want to just kind of an additional question I want to ask before we finish up this episode, because, you know, obviously a lot of the things that you're saying on here are just going to kind of make a lot of people's heads explode. And I feel like I know the Baptist world pretty good. But, you know, so here's I, I guess I have two questions for you. And that is um, to you, what is old time religion? And are you against old time religion? You would have to define old-time religion. I will also ask thee a question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You'll have to define old-time religion. If we roll it all the way back to the very first verse, in the beginning, God, I'm all for it. God never started in the middle with anything. The same was in the beginning with God, Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The same Jesus comes back, not a different one, the same. In the beginning, God had already finalized his will for salvation. In the beginning, Christ slain before the foundation of the world and hope of eternal life, which God promised before the world began. So that's my old time religion. My old time religion, I love Brother Hiles, preach for him, and Lee Robertson traveled with him, preached for those guys, roll off everything. When we talk about old-time religion, can we not go back any further than them? It doesn't do those men any good if that's where we start. We have to start with words in the Scripture and God. I think that's a good answer because I, I am afraid that old-time religion, it means different things to different people, and it is my impression from listening to a lot of people that old-time religion, it's not really about doctrine. It's more about a about traditions and a methodology, you know, from the, like, like I said, from the last couple of generations. And, you know, I'm all for, you know, wearing a suit and tie in church and conservative music and all that kind of stuff. But it's like, I, I think doctrine is really important too. And we seem to care more about some of these surface things than we do the actual scripture. And I just, uh, and so again, when I, I know exactly what you mean when I hear you saying the things that you're saying, because you actually clearly define old-time religion, but at the same time, too, other people don't, and then it's e easy for them to just kind of label certain things. And so 
I just figured I'd give you a chance to put that out there too, to challenge people who want to be critical. You know, you define old time religion, and uh, and then see, you know, then talk to Brother Sharp and see if he's actually against it. And so, but anyway, well, hey, I appreciate you doing this. This has been very good. But this is all the time we have for this program. We will tomorrow uh, uh, be airing part two of this conversation with evangelist Brian Sharp of the Gentile Ministry. Make sure you go and purchase a copy uh, of that book. I've got a link in the website, uh, or a link to the website here, and uh, go buy that book, Crept in Unawares. And right next to it, you'll see the, our scripture right to keep and bear arms. I know a lot of you will probably like that one too. I, I also have that book. recommend you check that out. But anyway, thank you for watching, and we'll be back tomorrow. God bless. Thank you.